and it's going to rule the world. You watch. It's going to come early. It's going to come often. It's going to go to other diseases. This is the theranostic breakthrough we've all been waiting for. It's going to change the way we treat cancer. Welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. I am Gustav Vidar and today we will talk about the long-awaited result of the vision study, an international randomized open-label phase 3 study where lutetium PSMA 617 was investigated plus minus standard of care for men with metastatic prostate resistant prostate cancer. Today, I have invited three of the co-authors of the study, the well-known and recognized professors Oliver Sarter, Bernd Krause, and Ken Herrmann. Together, we will talk about the results of the vision study and its potential impact of the treatment of prostate cancer. So what's the outcome? What were the expectations? And when it comes to prostate cancer care, what lies ahead? Can this be the real takeoff of diagnostics? A lot to talk about, really looking forward. So as my colleague says, take it away. Our guests are Oliver Sarter, Ken Herman and Bernard Krauss, experts in the field of theragnostics for prostate cancer and co-authors of the vision study. Oliver Sarter is the world-renowned prostate cancer expert and leader of Tulane's Prostate Cancer Research Programme. Ken Herman is head of the Department of Nuclear Medicine at the University Hospital in Essen and associate professor at the University of California in Los Angeles. Bernard Krauss is director of the Clinic and Polyclinic for Nuclear Medicine at the Center of Radiology at University Medicine in Rostock. He is also the president of the German Society for Nuclear Medicine. Glad to have you all here. We have gathered to talk about the vision study. Before we dive deep, did you get the result as you expected? Yes or no? Bernd? Yes. Better than expected. Oliver? I did expect it to be positive. You know, this is unequivocally a, an active molecule. We have lots of preliminary data. Uh, the question was not, would it be positive? The question would be, how positive would it be? And one of the things we did use is a little bit of an unusual criteria for the PSMA positivity. Mm. We knew that we would be expanding the population, possibly with some risk to the outcome. So I did think it would be positive. I did not think it would be this positive. The three of you have different specialities. Oliver, you are an oncologist in the US, experienced in prostate cancer. Burning Ken, you are from nuclear medicine in Germany, where it's once started with PSMA. Everyone may not be familiar with this vision study is about. Let's start from the beginning. In this study, you have investigated lutetium PSMA 617 together with standard of care versus standard of care alone. Burned. Uh, All of our listeners may not be familiar with PSMA. Uh, what is it? PSMA is a prostate-specific membrane antigen, a structural molecule situated in the, in the cell surface of prostate cancer cells. And uh, it is a target which is highly expressed in prostate cancer cells. And uh, so by means of radiopharmacy, we can 
uh, have molecules that bind to this PSMA and specifically um, target this uh, structure with uh, radionuclides. So lutetium-177 PSMA uh, is the small molecule labeled with lutetium-177 as a beta emitter and the beta emitter is used for uh, irradiation of the prostate cancer cells. Okay, uh, and you, we have this uh, in, the, in the trial, the, they used PET scan as well, uh, gallium PCMA11. Tell us what that is, Ken. Can you explain this more? So, so, so I think first of all, I would say, uh, which is important to mention is that the kind of therapy we're talking about is that we can first of all really see what we treat mm. and then we treat what we see. The reason I'm mentioning it is, is because the gallium PSMA11 is a compound which uh, shows us what we treat. And, and the reason this was part of the study was that uh, uh, there is a very high likelihood that the prostate cancer expresses PSMA, but we cannot be sure. There are 10 to 15% of patients who do not express sufficiently PSMA to be really suitable for treatment. And, and the gallium PSMA scan showed us, visualized us, how many of the lesions really express PSMA and how much PSMA they express. And when I put this into reference with the reference organ, like for example, liver, it gives me a very good hint if a patient is qualified to, to undergo the PSMA ray ligand therapy with lutetium 177 as explained by Brandt or should not. And, and, and this is the reason. And, and coming back to vision, because uh, as I said before, we had an idea more or less what the ballpark is 10 to 15%. Actually the number of patients who did not uh, meet the inclusion criteria based on the PSMA 11 PET scan were almost 13% of patients. So pretty much right on target. So in some way you could say that uh, this is uh, the gallium 68 PSMA 11 is the companion diagnostics before um, giving the therapy with lutetium uh, 177 PSMA. Uh, you identify the target, the patients that benefit from the therapy and thereafter you apply the therapy. And actually it's a very hot topic yeah? because uh, we always talk about personalized medicine, right? But this case, it's real personalized medicine because it's not when you do, take a biopsy, you take one little lesion and, and you look what's going on there, right? But in this case, we look at the whole body. And this is the first successful prospective confirmation that PET-guided uh, patient selection is really useful. And that's why important because it's currently highly debated. Do we really need this if almost nine out of 10 patients benefit from this therapy? But honestly, I give it the other spin. I think it's the first time that we prove that we can prevent certain percent of patients not to undergo a very expensive therapy with a certain tox profile after all, and, and, and really only offer the, the therapy to patients who have a high likelihood to benefit. Oliver, uh, can you give us some background of the design of the trials? Uh, what patient was recruited and so on? Sure, so, so a couple of items here, it, you know, several, critical items, including what pretreatments would be allowed. If you want to go for an overall survival endpoint, which is the way the trial was initially designed, you probably want to come to the tail of the dog. You want to come all the way to the end. And so these patients had already been pretreated with either abiraterone, enzalutamide, at least one taxane and possibly two. So very heavily pretreated patient population. Next was the selection criteria. And the selection criteria involved PSMA uptake for one metastatic lesion beyond the liver. That was designed to be very, very permissive because we didn't want to carve down 
and treat too few patients. We also could not really use the FDG PET, which the Australians have strongly suggested, because in the United States, FDG PET is not really approved in prostate cancer, and that would have led to a commercial conundrum. And you cannot have a non-commercial test dictating a commercial therapy. Next was the control arm. The control arm was very critical. We explicitly decided not to use chemotherapy. Why? Most patients never get second-line chemotherapy. Only 20 to 25% of the patients get second-line chemotherapy. If we deleted chemotherapy, we would open it up to a larger patient population. Remember, this trial was designed with the idea of creating a commercial product. It was designed for the regulators to be able to give a big, broad approval. No chemotherapy required during the trial enabled us to have a larger population, relatively lenient uh, PSMA PET inclusion criteria, no FDG PET inclusion. So those were the critical elements. Overall survival was the primary endpoint, and then it was altered later on after I wrote the trial to include the RPFS. So what's standard of care in this case? Well, you know, standard of care could be whatever the physicians thought was appropriate, but typically it was repeat abiraterone or insulinamide in the majority of patients. The majority of patients in the trial received additional novel hormonal therapies. There's data to show that if you use abiraterone or insulinamide, then give chemotherapy, that a group of patients can be resensitized to the hormonal therapy. And in addition, there are patients who may have had uh, the, the therapy given quite remotely, even a year or two before. The more time you have between an initial hormonal therapy, uh, novel hormone, and the second novel hormone, the more likely it is you will respond. You can also use external beam radiation, bisphosphonate, sildronic acid, um, And, and that was what to our glucocorticoids and, of course, all the pain medications. So standard of care in the patient population who've had prior abienza, prior docetaxel, and 38% of the patients had prior cabazitaxel as well, is whatever the clinician can imagine might be helpful. But these patients, very few of them got more chemotherapy even after the trial was done. Only the minority of patients got more chemotherapy in their life. In their life. So something I would like to add, very important is patients were really included in a third line scenario, MCRPC. And I think it's very important because uh, some of the publications you see, they're like mixed populations. And I think this is a really clean and smart development. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about the results. What was the result from the endpoints? Well, you know, I mean, the overall survival has a ratio of 0.62 is very, very strongly positive. Confidence intervals went from 0.52 to 0.74. Uh, P's and lots of 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, So it's a very powerfully positive trial. Confidence intervals didn't even come close to one. Um, essentially, all the subsets except the liver were positive. There were some ethnic subsets that were just way underpowered, so you can't say anything. 
the liver was 0.87, so raising a little bit of caution about the criteria we use for the liver. And it could be that a more appropriate PSMA SUV type uptake in the liver would give better outcomes. We don't know. You know, that has to be looked at retrospectively. But, you know, to me, the money shot is in the overall survival 0.62 has ratio. 11.3 to 15.3 months, four months at median. But remember, the median is an intent to treat analysis. And so it, it's, it, you know, always think the medians probably underestimate the true impact. Bernicke, you have uh, met these patients in Germany. Uh, what did you expect from the study, from earlier experience? Well, so the, the clinical experience for the last years um, indicated uh, that most of the patients would have a benefit, about two-thirds. So in this way, uh, the results from the patients treated in the study were similar to our experience. But on the other hand, it was a very important step uh, to the approval of, or to have an approved medication or radioligand therapy for the patients. And so, therefore, the vision trial was extremely important for us internationally to really promote the therapy. So, so Bernd is a very modest person, right? Uh, and a very uh, so I, I'm a little bit more, uh, let's say, uh, uh, let's say I'm a little bit more direct. I really want to point out that the hazard ratio of 0.4 was achieved for RPFS. 0.4 means that the patients who did not undergo Letrisium 617 treatment had a two times, 2.5 times higher likelihood to experience uh, progression. I mean, for a patient, it's a no-brainer, right? And even if you, look at, at, if you look at the overall survival, the hazard ratio is 0.62. So this is not only highly significant, but these are also very, very impressive uh, uh, hazard ratios. And if you look at the numbers, even there, median progression-free survival, RPFS, 8.7 compared to 3.4 months, more than doubled. Yeah, and, and, uh, and also for overall survival, there, the, the, the added value was four months from 11.3 median up to 15.3. So this is something which uh, uh, I really have to say uh, uh, is absolutely, uh, uh, I don't want to say surprising, but it's uh, very comforting. It's a very strong effect. There is no doubt about that. And uh, mm. so uh, if you look for the Kaplan-Meier analysis, uh, so that's very from the very first side of the results, uh, it's really clear uh, that uh, it's really superior. Oliver, uh, can you set this result in comparison to, to other treatment options for these patients? Well, well, you know, there are no treatment options hmm. for the patient with abiraterone, insulidomide, dostaxel, so there are no treatment options, zero. Now, in the third one setting, or, or, which would be post-ABI, or ENZA, hmm. post-docetaxel, we have one study called the CARD study that did give a, a an important overall survival benefit, but a little bit smaller. But these patients, 38% had already received cabazitaxel, so they wouldn't have been eligible for the CARD study, number one. Number two, if you look at the chemotherapy subsequently received by these patients is only a minority. So our strategy to open up and treat the patients who were not chemotherapy eligible or either refusing chemotherapy really meant that there were no other treatment options for these patients. So what they received in the experimental arm was probably the best thing they could receive. And what they received in the control arm 
was a bit limited, but these patients have very, very few options. So we offered a standard care improvement. And remember, these are not patients who are at the beginning of the race. These are people at the end of the race. These patients have already run a marathon. They've run through all the therapies available to them, and this was their last shot, and it worked. So this four months is different than the four months that you would have gotten at the beginning of the sprint. This is four months in addition to everything else that you could have received. So this four months is more valuable than the four months you might have received earlier on, in ter- at least in my opinion. It's a very valuable four months of life on medium. Thank you. In the beginning of the trial, there was dropouts from the control arm. Could you tell us a little bit how you handled that? Well, this was really a significant problem in the beginning. And uh, mm-hmm. so the patients randomized the control arm would potentially consider to get the therapy um, some other places. And there was a very intense discussion with the centers. And uh, so I think it was very important to have a very close um, communication with patients to guide them through the therapy. And uh, so there were many interventions that took place in this phase of the study, which in the end resulted uh, in a, a equivalent or the same range rate of um, dropouts in the control arm. I mean, I want to add there two things. So first of all, when you look where the study was initially initiated, and also a lot of patients were actually included was obviously in the United States. In the United States, uh, you did not have the culture of uh, very powerful diagnostic centers, like for example, we do have in Europe, which also means that uh, I think whereas, for example, in Germany, we look back into uh, multidisciplinary tumor boards for at least 12 to uh, 10, 10 to 12 years, just for neonatal tumors, uh, for prostate cancer, at least for five years, where we really already have access to this uh, modern ray-ligand therapy, I think uh, it's much more challenging to really establish this kind of collaboration in education in the US. This is one of the biggest challenges. The second big challenge is you also have to admit that patients who have seen the interesting retrospective data from Europe, knowing that there's a powerful treatment, kind of uh, knowing that the only option they have in their life is uh, uh, actually to get this treatment. Come on, if it would be your dad, what would you do? Yeah. Obviously, I know as a as a part of the vision pro- of the vision steering committee, I have to say it's a utmost importance to stay in the study, and uh, no matter if you're in the control arm or if you're in the in, in the experimental arm. But if you ask me as a potential son, and my dad has prostate cancer, I would not like to answer this question. Uh, and this really has not been well publicized. So what I'm about to say has not really been broadly public knowledge. The most important thing we did was we stopped accrual at selected sites. There were certain sites which will, of course, not be named, but they were accruing patients on the isotope arm, but they were not keeping patients on the control arm. This became early on evident. So those sites were shut down. That was the most important thing. And then after people got the notice that we were serious about shutting down sites, everybody else got a little bit in line. So the policeman came and enforced the law. And once the law was enforced, the rest of the crowd followed the law a little bit better. Okay. Would it have been better to to allow crossover? Well, this depends on the the point of view. So recently, or at ESCO, the the results of the NETA-1 trial have been published at the five-year 
uh, overall survival data. And what we see, there is a significant effect from crossovers. So even if you co correct for that, uh, you might have a problem of not significant results. And so we had a really long discussion on crossover design for the vision trial. We decided not to go for it. And I think it was a good decision because we see very strong results. I think for the next studies, we will have to discuss the possibility of crossover. But again, so for the netter one, the five-year results don't look as promising as uh, the results in the beginning. So it, it, it's, it's a very good point raised by Bernd. Obviously, Novartis now being in charge of the studies, they have incorporated crossover. But uh, let's be honest, right? Endocyte, small company, this was a do or die study for them as a company. And uh, so I, I think it was the right decision for that time. But I also think it's the right decision now to learn from that and, and offer uh, the crossover for patients, which is because I think this will definitely ease up the patient recruitment and also mitigate the dropout problem. Nevertheless, and there I really have to make, give huge compliments to the people really managing the study, how they were really able to turn this around. Yeah, and this is really one of the big, when you look at the, the trial design was important, obviously the therapy, the potency of the therapy is very important, but uh, uh, my kudos and compliments to the people who were able to turn this around. How about the safety profile? Uh, as expected, worse, better compared to the other treatments? Well, the safety profile is uh, favorable for the rotation phase of therapy. Um, there are issues with the respect to uh, hematopoietic system. Um, and uh, if you compare uh, with the standard of care, uh, there are higher numbers for the lutetium pismae therapy, but almost everything low grades and uh, not um, resulting in a significant impact for the study. So you, your question is something where I would ask you back, uh, uh, surprising for who? So surprising for me as someone who has treated uh, patients with ray ligand therapy for like 15 plus years, no, absolutely not surprising. Surprising for all the people who are afraid that uh, ray ligand therapy uh, uh, causes secondary cancer, uh, ruins the kidney and kills patients, absolutely surprising for them. And I want to also uh, add on what, what, what Bernd said before is that uh, NETA2, uh, NETA1, sorry, NETA1 at ASCO, over, not reaching over survival is one of the messages, but, but this is not surprising, 36% crossover. The interesting point is no additional secondary malignancies in a four plus year follow-up. Yeah, we talk about two MDS patients and more than 111 patients treated. Both of the MDS cases actually uh, happened at the time when NETA1 was published. So uh, I, I think this is a key message. It's a very strong message. Uh, and, and, and also, and this maybe sounds even a little bit uh, uh, sloppy when I say that, but when we talk at this late lines of patients, uh, I can only congratulate to the patients if they are long enough alive uh, to, uh, to, to, to suffer from MDS. But uh, because these patients have very terrible prognosis, right? Uh, obviously, and this is also, because I don't want to make fun, I take it really serious, this uh, toxicity profile, something we really need to uh, keep an eye on. Uh, the more we move into earlier lines, the more we move into a healthier patient, the more we even talk about maybe near event or at event treatment, this is obviously something we really, really have to be aware of. We need to keep an eye on, and we should also not to get, uh, let's say, too cocky uh, because of the 2 data, because again, we talk only about 111 patients, but nevertheless, I think it's, it's encouraging. 
would like to add that uh, also for the PCMA therapy, for the vision trial, there was no um, point with respect to renal toxicity, but uh, there was seen that there were more effects uh, on renal function in the therapy group and in the very moment where we move earlier to adjuvant or new adjuvant therapies in this setting we have to take to, uh, take uh, care and really to get good data and therefore i think it's very important also to collect the data on the renal function and uh, address this point and for kidney, obviously, the long-term effects are something more worrying. And and, and this being said, uh, the data right now is what is the first patient in was, I think, May or June 2018. So that the follow-up is still quite limited. So we need to be cautious. We need to be attentive. But we also need to point out that the, what we know from now, this until now, is very, very promising, especially the tox profile. And we have to see that, uh, for example, compared to like hepatotaxel therapy, uh, the side effects are really severe. And if you look for the patients, if you have the patients in the therapy world and if you talk to them, uh, so the benefit is very direct. Uh, and so the, for the patients, uh, it's really a comfort, the therapy, and not comparable to other therapies. Uh, we now have the results from the vision and we have insights from Australian therapy phase, phase two trial where lutetium PSMA uh, was evaluated together with cabazizactol. Without this data in mind, which patients and in what line of treatment will you give lutetium PSMA? I think we'll have to see what the regulators say. You know, the important thing mm. in America will be the reimbursement, and the regulators will determine the reimbursement. So mm. watch the regulators. We'll do what they say. What is the future for lutetium PSMA? Uh, we talked about the, the trials Novartis AAA preparing, a PSMA 4 and PSMA addition. Uh, the Australians are doing trials as well in an earlier stage setting. Um, what can we expect from these trials? Well, we hope that as for other radionuclide-based therapies, there will be more patients that potentially can benefit from the therapy. We have good experience. If you compare it uh, to lutetium uh, dototate uh, therapy, also to radium 223. And I think it's a, as a consequence now for the third line um, uh, therapy study uh, for the vision uh, uh, study, we have to move into earlier phases. And mm. uh, so research or clinical research is open, but I think uh, there is much of a hope that uh, there will be good results for that too. Mm. I really want to emphasize uh, uh, how important this vision study is because this is really like a gatekeeper. I mean, everyone was watching it. The Netta one, you know, small, a very quite small indication, unicorn tumors, patients live long. Uh, everyone was really watching uh, Novartis uh, uh, do the study. Uh, I think the pressure was huge, not only on Novartis, but also on actually on nuclear medicine. Because if this study would have failed, this would have been also led to an implosion of all the investments and ideas in this in this space. In other words, now we see the other thing. We see now the the blossoming, like in the in the Gartner hype cycle. We are now really up there. Uh, uh, and and I think the good thing is this will definitely trigger more clinical studies for prostate cancer, bringing PSMA six seventeen to earlier lines, maybe even near event, maybe even at event scenarios. Uh, but it also will go beyond that. We will see new radio ligands, so new radio nucleides. We will see new ligands, probably new targets. Uh, I think we will see uh, quite a lot, uh, quite a lot of development. 
And this being said, I also want to uh, use the opportunity to, to raise one thing. The big thing is that uh, uh, I think a big decisive factor will be the rollout of space and reliant therapy. Uh, I mean, it will take another six months, maybe a year, and it's approved. Then we have to discuss reimbursement. Reimbursement is a huge issue, for example, in Europe. And then even if reimbursement and, and approval is done uh, and all the patients are willing to get the treatment, who's going to give the treatment? Do we have enough people who are trained to do this? And I'm not talking about uh, 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 Switzerland, the Netherlands, Australia, or even Germany. I talk about the countries where they have very little experience in relying on therapy. Uh, even in the US, I don't know. Do we have enough trained people? You have centers of excellence, no questions, from Kettering, UCLA, UCSF. But uh, uh, are we able to cope with the demand? And I think this will be the next big uh, challenge or opportunity. And actually, that was my next question. Uh, in Sweden, uh, and Swedish-based, we have 2,000 men years uh, dying uh, per year uh, of prostate cancer, uh, liable for this late-stage treatment. Uh, and that was my question. Are we prepared for this kind of, of treatment? Because it's just not a, a pill. Yeah, so, so there are two dimensions. One uh, the, was raised by cancer. That's the centers that the therapy works. Uh, but there's also the number of places to, to give the therapies. And so we have done uh, a calculation, an estimation for Germany, for example. And as we experience that the number of uh, patients suffering from thyroid disease decrease uh, in the German therapy wards, uh, if only the patients for, with, eligible for the vision trial would be treated in Germany, we would have in one time all the therapy wards full with patients for the whole year. So there might be a major demand in the future. So we need infrastructure, we need standardization, uh, and we need really the centers, the centers with a very close collaboration of nuclear medicine, plus the oncology, but also really the nuclear medicine teams uh, being able uh, to do therapies in the way they need to be done. So my, my, my take is that uh, right now we're not ready yet. But we are starting a lot of different initiatives uh, uh, trying to get ready, which means, first of all, on a local level, like a German level, where we really try to make sure that we secure enough uh, sites, enough beds. It's, a, it's, a, it's an inpatient procedure in Germany. On the ENM level, uh, we are obviously trying to, to, uh, to, to, to provide courses. ESMED is an ESMED initiative, uh, education initiative, trying to teach people. We are going to have the first joint ENM ESMO course where we really try to reach out uh, to oncologists. Uh, uh, I think there are many, many ideas and concepts. Uh, I also think that actually uh, the big players, Bea and Novartis, should have a keen interest on, on, on building this. Mm. Uh, more training. Are the medical doctor, are the oncologist and nuclear medicine uh, prepared? Or do, they, do we need more training? Uh, when we talked about with Rod Hicks for some months ago, we, he talked about a new role, terrenosticians. I, I fully agree. And uh, first of all, Rod is a great person, absolutely one of the uh, big mentors in the field of Sanostics. I can only say what we try to do here locally is uh, we try to attract uh, uh, internal medicine doctors uh, for, uh, uh, for nuclear medicine, for Sanostics, and uh, that they learn how to deal with it. And we also try to motivate some of our uh, nuclear medicine physicians to really uh, go for one year to internal medicine, maybe even two years, to, to really know how to deal uh, uh, with the oncological therapies. 
And uh, in addition, I think that for the training of uh, nuclear medicine physicians in the future, uh, it should be mandatory to really have a training in oncology because it's important to really uh, have the principles for oncology, for the therapies, for di diagnostics. And uh, also you are on an interdisciplinary team. I think it's important uh, to have that knowledge for yourself. So in the Society of Nuclear Medicine, and at least in Germany, we think very carefully about that. I'm so bent. I'm not 100% sure if the people who sit in private practice and, and are diagnostic nuclear medicine physicians, but for the diagnosticians, as mentioned by Rod, I fully agree with you. Well, this is what I meant, definitely. The last question, is this the real takeoff for diagnostics? I think it's a major move. It's really a great trial with excellent results and it will move the scene forward. So I think yes. Absolutely, and and, and you just look uh, just look at Wall Street. Just look at what's happening there. Then I think it, it gives you, even if you deduct this from the general craziness right now on the market, I still shows you that uh, yes, it's uh, it's going to be the takeoff, and it's going to rule the world. You watch, it's going to come early. It's going to come often. It's going to go to other diseases. This is the theranostic breakthrough we've all been waiting for. It's going to change the way we treat cancer. That's my man. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I believe it. I really believe it. Me too. It. I know. Right. And Gustav, I told you, I need yeah. Oliver on this one. This words of wisdom from Oliver Sartor uh, will uh, end the podcast for today. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Ken. And thank you, Bernd, for your valuable insights of the vision trial and its potential impact. I think we need to come back for this topic for prostate cancer or the treatment of prostate cancer later on in the Diagnostic Talks podcast. So we close for today. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, please send us an email, podcast at samnordic.se, podcast at samnordic.se, or visit our LinkedIn site or homepage samnordic.se. Stay tuned, stay safe. Bye-bye.